Good morning. My name is Spencer. I am one of the pastors here. We are in the second week of walking through the subject matter of homosexuality and uh, in our Theology of Sex Plus series. Last week, we established uh, from the scriptures uh, that homosexuality is sin. So we spent a lot of time looking at all the different texts in the scriptures that show that this is true. And, uh, and in doing that, we, we can trust the scriptures on this. It's a little bit of First Peter, what First Peter says, all flesh is like the grass in its glory, like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The culture may shift on things, no matter what it is, but we can actually trust and stand in the word of God. That's what actually lasts. And what we established is, is that you can reject the God of the Bible, you can reject Christianity altogether, and be intellectually consistent in holding up uh, 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 homosexuality is a social good, but you can't have the Bible and that. They don't, they're incompatible. So we spent some time doing that, and then I walked through my personal story, my personal testimony uh, from the teenage years onwards of struggling with not just heterosexual lust, but also struggling with same-sex attraction, that being a part of my reality, which if you weren't here last week, <laughs> surprise, um, <laughs> <laughs> pays to be here. That's why we don't neglect the gathering of the saints. We're here every week for a reason. Um, and if you weren't here, you can go back and listen. That sermon's online. I'm not going to walk through all the details of that, but you can listen to it uh, and, and catch some of my story uh, that I walked through last week. Um, but in that, one of the things that, uh, that can be frustrating, whether I'm struggling with this sin or any other sin, uh, is that we want to see sin put to death in our lives. Like, that's something that we want. We want to actually see, like, growth and moving past it in a way that it's not a temptation anymore. And I, and I know that all of us feel that in some regard to the different areas in our lives. I love this quote from, uh, from Chris Lungard in his book, Enemy Within. He says, sin can be like trick birthday candles. You blow them out and smile, thinking you have your wish, then your jaw drops as they burst into flames. And I was like, if you've ever seen a kid who like blows out trick birthday candles, they're all excited. They've given their wish. They've blown it out. Yay. And then all of a sudden, boom, it just bursts forth and they're, they're just stunned. They didn't know fire could do that. And that's how it feels like sometimes is that you feel like, oh, I've, I've, I've had a few months where this has not been a thing. Then all of a sudden, it, temptation just shows back up and it's wildly frustrating at times, especially if we can't actually understand what we're struggling with. And that's what I want to do today. I said today was going to be far more practical uh, than last week. And today, I'll give you the caveat, is going to be wildly different than a lot of the sermons we ever preach up here. Usually, we preach books of the Bible. We walk through those books slowly. Um, and even in topical series like this, we usually have a topic and they usually kind of pull from a text and move through the text on that. This is different than anything I've normally preached. I am like going to try to fit as much in as I can. I'm going to be, it's, it's going to be drinking from a fire hydrant. So you're welcome. Um, if you're a note taker, this is your moment to shine. Write as many notes as you would like, because I'm going to get as much out as I can in 40 minutes. Okay, so 
I have six questions that I want to answer. I think these six questions will help anyone who's individually struggling with same-sex attraction, but I also believe that these six questions will help us corporately as the church understand this in a way that can help not only our brothers and sisters in Christ who are wrestling with this, fight this, but also will help us love one another well and, uh, and be a church that has a more biblical and thorough understanding of sin and struggle. So here are the six questions. What is... Number one, what is same-sex attraction? Number two, how is anyone same-sex attracted? Number three, is it okay to identify as LGBTQ plus as a Christian? Number four, do we really recommend celibacy for those who exclusively struggle with same-sex attraction? Number five, how can church family love and support someone in our church who is struggling with same-sex attraction? And finally, number six, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, what should you do? So... A lot to get through. Let me pray. Let me walk this together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, speak to us this morning in a subject that is certainly not neutral for us. I pray that we would have open hearts to receive what you have to say uh, and that we would walk out your teaching uh, with faith, uh, with repentance, with joyfully worshiping you as ultimately better than anything this world has to offer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, question number one, what is same-sex attraction? Because I threw that word out a couple times last week. You might wonder, what, what, what is that? Is it the same as, as being gay? Is it the same as, as gay orientation? And it's not, you don't read that in the Bible, but what is it? Is it the same as, as the New Testament speaks about this word, men who practice homosexuality? What is this word? Okay, to be very direct, same-sex attraction is to be sexually attracted to someone from the same sex, and it's often the result of an inclination, an inclination that sometimes is not even of one's own choosing, which we'll get to that in a moment. Now, some will object to saying that same-sex attraction is sexual attraction, because what you're going to hear often from the LGBTQ LGBTQ plus community is that, no, it's, you, y'all always think it's about sex. You always, you're trying to reduce this down to sex. It's more than that. It's love. It's what uh, Lynn Miranda Manuel at the Tonys years ago was saying. Love is love is love is love is love is love. That anthem was to celebrate. No, it's bigger than this. And what I would say in answering to that is that romantic attraction always has a sexual baseline component. That romantic attraction always has a sexual baseline component. A single person can have a deep friendship with someone that is deeper than, than many marriages are. Like you have a depth of friendship that is found, is greater than it's found in, in many other marriages. No, but there, there's a difference between a marriage and a deep friendship. And sex ultimately categorically places that into something different that is Different than a friendship altogether, because that's what sex does. Sex uh, binds two fleshes together as one. That's what Paul is trying to help the Corinthian church see in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says uh, to a church who is uh, uh, struggling with sexual promiscuity, he says, Do you not know that uh, your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute, which temple prostitution was uh, prevalent in the Corinthian city. Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And what he's getting at there is that there's this profound mystery that sex does. It, it binds two flesh together as one. That is why 
That is why heterosexual, sexual sin is also deeply heinous and rebellious and is against the will of God because it's, trying, it, it's, it's fusing together two uh, people without the marital covenant that's supposed to bind them together. And it's removing, I mean, I, I, one of my professors said it very bluntly back in the day. He said, we've reduced sex to just the rubbing together of body parts. That we've removed actually what's actually holy and supposed to be wonderful about this. And we failed to actually understand what's happening here. But what's wild is, is that we've done that culturally, but we also understand culturally that sex complicates things. Like that's like the basis for every white friends TV show from like Seinfeld to How I Met Your Mother. Like that, everyone understands that as an axiom, as like a universal truth. Sex complicates things. It's for a reason. It's because it's tapping into a bigger biblical reality. There's something bigger happening in sex. So with no sexual component, two men or two women loving each other deeply, that's holy friendship. That's, that's holy friendship. That's David and Jonathan in the Old Testament, right? A deep, wonderful friendship, which there are skeptics who will look at David and Jonathan and say, oh, I, don't, I mean, look at it. I think something gay is going on. And it's like, no, 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 no. You've misunderstood what friendship is supposed to be. That's what the book of Romans is saying. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's a wonderful picture of friendship. But it takes sex to make something actually a relationship that's romantic. So same-sex attraction, in summary, is attraction to the same sex. It is not just friendship. Now, the next question is, how does that happen? How does same-sex attraction come about in an individual's life? Now, for years, the majority of Americans believed that this was merely a behavioral choice. And then around 2015, polling shows a shift. And that is when the majority of Americans started to believe, when they're asked the question, uh, they would answer that, no, you're born this way. Okay? So, people ask, is this something that you're just born with, or is this something that you choose? And like most of sin... Answer that question is incredibly complicated. So we're going to walk through that for a moment. If you're looking for empirical evidence to show that anyone is born same-sex attracted, you will not find it. You will not find it. The American Psychiatric Association, the APA, which has long championed gay identity and celebrated gay identity, says it on their website out of the studies that they have done, that homosexuality is... Uh, there's no known root cause. It is likely multifactorial, meaning both biological and also behavioral. And there are, uh, so in psychology, identical twin studies is kind of the gold standard of the nature versus nurture debate. So if you have two identical twins with two identical genes, you can study their behavior and see how they play out. And that's like the gold standard in psychology. There are multiple twin studies that show that having identical genes actually does not actually yield, uh, uh, it's not a cause and effect here. So, having said that, it's also unhelpful and unbiblical to assume that same-sex attraction is merely a choice. And that's because everyone is born into sin. That's a doctrine of original sin that has guided the church for centuries. Everyone is born into original sin. Romans 5 teaches, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all 
sinned. So clearly taught that we inherit the sinful nature of our forefathers is what other texts and the scriptures say. So this is something that we inherit. Now, we certainly make choices on the sins that we act upon, but who amongst us chooses our own proclivities? Who amongst us chooses our own inclinations, right? I mean, the, the middle schooler who is struggling with depression and anxiety, is that merely just a, a result of all the choices that he or she has made? I mean, I mean, how many of you have a second grader who is just hot-tempered and has always been just hot-tempered? Has your second grader made a series of choices along the way that have made them more of a hot-tempered natured child as opposed to your fourth grader who has always been more of a peaceable child? You ever had a sibling who seemed to have just a, an addictive personality? They're raised in the same household, same experiences, but they just had a more addictive personality which resulted in substance abuse or gambling deaths. Or are you that sibling? See, see how this plays out? All of us have uh, inclinations we, we've inherited from the fall. We have certain fallen desires that present just their, their inclinations in our lives that we're inclined towards. So for uh, the person who has more addictive inclinations, they, if, if they leave sin unchecked, will result in addictive pursuits and addictive substances. For the person who is just a chatty extrovert, maybe externally processed and has to think out loud, they might be the kind of person that talks, 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 talks. That's just kind of how they're, that's kind of what they're inclined. That might result in, if their sin is left unchecked, gossip or slander or unfoolish or unloving talk. And for someone like me who has an inclination towards same-sex attraction, left unchecked can result in pursuing same-sex sin. It's complicated, you guys. All of this is incredibly complicated. And, and when, you, when you get in the weeds of this, it feels like Paul's internal battle with indwelling sin in Romans 7 when he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And that's for everyone with any struggle. It's just like it just, it's complicated. And same-sex attraction is complicated. And I would argue that every situation is case by case and it's very difficult to understand. You'll hear some people that say, like, oh, just, I, I knew from a very young age that I was only attracted to someone from the same sex. Or if you listen to my story last week, that somewhere in the years of teenage years of, of, of pursuing pornography, just something changed in my nature. This is complicated. So, what do you do when the Bible doesn't give you, like, a third Corinthians, like, addresses this with detail, the appendices, and, like, charts all this out? What do you do when the Bible doesn't give us the most direct answers? First, you have some humility and recognizing this is deeply complicated. You have some humility, and then we think biblically and theologically about this. So we think biblically and theologically because of original sin, we have these inclinations. And with those inclinations come temptations. And in our church, we often talk about temptation in three different arenas, the flesh, the world, and the devil. There's going to three areas of temptation that show up in our lives that James 1 says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this happens our flesh kind of lures
lures and entices us into temptation, and that conceives sin, and sin, if it's pursued, it leads to death. We see this in Jesus in the wilderness with, with Satan, external force of evil, in the person of Satan, tempting, trying to lure Jesus into sin. And we also see this with worldly temptations and worldly contribu- like contributing factors that act like fertilizer that's poured onto same-sex attraction that cause it to grow, which I'll get to more in a moment. But we don't believe that those external factors, okay? We don't believe that some of those external factors are the root cause of our sin. We don't believe that. That's Freud. That's Freudian psychology. That's that when you hear someone says, my parents are the result of all my problems. That's Freud. That's not the gospel. Now, one of the things we teach here quite often is the idea of, of, of fruit to root. That we try to understand if there's bad spiritual fruit, if there's sin, that that has a source. You've got to source it back into the tree, down to the root to understand what's happening. That all of our sin is complicated, but it's also rooted in deeper desires. Now, we believe that. We talk about that candidly when it comes to anxiety or when it comes to anger. We don't treat homosexuality as completely categorically different. No. But absolutely, when you take the fruit, you can trace it down to some root things that are happening. And I'd say it's different for different people. For some people, they may have a deep desire for comfort and pleasure. And for them, homosexuality is a way to feel good and really feed that deeper desire of comfort. For others, it might be this deeper desire for approval or being loved. And someone from uh, the same sex might actually feel like a safer or intimate bet to be able to have that type of approval or that type of, of love from someone else. I mentioned Rosaria Butterfield last week. Rosaria Butterfield was uh, a professor at Syracuse. Uh, she taught feminist queer theory at Syracuse, and she was uh, in a lesbian relationship. And then a pastor in the area spent a lot of time with her, sharing the gospel with her. This is in her, uh, her memoir, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which I would recommend to anyone. But she has some thought, more thoughts on this. She has another book called Openness Unhindered. And she says, sin must be fought at its deepest level. That's what she's doing, trying to get to the deep level. She says, the root of my lesbianism was pride. The root of my heterosexual sin was pride as well. For others, the root of sexual sin may be lust or sexual addiction. I realized that my sin was not exclusively a, desire, a sexual desire for women. My sexual desire for women hinged upon another sin. It danced on the glittering tip of the knife of pride. I was dealing with a pride that rejected patriarchy as a flat-out danger and combining with this with a homosocial affinity to women that neatly morphed into sexual practice. It was easy to claim myself a lesbian. And what she understands in her story is that a rejection of patriarchy and some of the third-wave feministic ideas that she had basically neatly morphed into a rejection of men altogether. Now, is that the case for everyone? No. That's her experiences. But she's done the work in trying to understand this and understand some of the root issues that are happening here. So we should do that with any of our sins, which is what we teach all the time here. And we also, as we understand some of the root issues, we also look at some of the contributing factors, some of the worldly contributing factors that act like fertilizer that get poured onto this that cause it to grow. 
Some may have a, some have had a, a cruel or very harsh father that has really poisoned the well for all men in a way that might result in women being a, a, a more uh, seemingly safe place for intimacy, and that may be the root of same-sex attraction for some. For others, uh, you know, one, I'll tell you, one, one of the, it's, it's a contributing factor I've seen over and over and over again in different individuals. And as I've walked with different people who have been, uh, who have experienced childhood sexual abuse, you listen to some of their stories, and they, I mean, they'll say it. It's like, they weren't even thinking. They were a child. They weren't even thinking in sexual terms. And then an older relative of the same sex sexually abused them, and it did something. And you can't deny their stories. You can't really deny their experience of what they're articulating. That's definitely a factor for some. For others like me, it was years of looking at pornography in the teenage years that really opened a doorway in a way that I did not see coming. And I feel like that's actually probably a story that many people have because we live in a culture that's opened the Pandora's box of sexuality and sexual exploration and sexual pursuits. And in doing that, I mean, goodness, if you study any, I mean, look at Greco-Roman culture, you can study that culture that really opened the Pandora's box of sexual exploration. And that culture, too, also had lots of sexual promiscuity, had lots of homosexuality as well. Undoubtedly, our experiences become the fertilizer that grows the indwelling sin within us and really shapes some of the inclinations that we feel on a regular basis. And demonizing anyone for their inclinations is exceptionally cruel. I mean, I mean demonizing anyone for their inclinations that y'all are not of their own choosing is exceptionally cruel. And I will say that if you are demonizing yourself because of your inclinations, that that is a foolish form of self-destruction. Don't do it. I mean, I feel like a hypocrite for saying it because I've, I've, I feel that. I feel that. But no, we have to believe what's true. And if you're a Christian, believe what I said last week. You're not defined by this. You're defined by your desires. You're defined by Christ. And if that is true, and it is, and we believe that, then while we're not defined by it, we should also not celebrate what we are not defined by. And that leads me to the third question. Is it okay to identify as LGBTQ plus as a Christian? Is it okay to call yourself a gay Christian, which is what some will do? So, I mean, some will, let me separate this out. There are some that will say, I'm a gay Christian, and they're pursuing that lifestyle, and they're pursuing that uh, sin. That's categorically different. But there are Christians who say, no, I, I believe this is sin. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pursue that. But they'll identify and say, I'm a gay Christian, or I'm a lesbian Christian, or I'm a bi Christian. Is that okay? I do not believe it is wise to embrace the, these categories. I don't think it is wise to embrace these categories. You did not once hear me refer to myself as bisexual last week. Not once. And that is, that is intentional. That is not a helpful descriptor of our experiences. There's, there's more that's happening in these labels. The very labels of homosexual and heterosexual as identity categories did not even exist until about the end of the 19th century. 
They did not exist until Freud and some of his contemporaries uh, really made them and kind of ingrained them into mainstream thought going into the 20th century. So these are recent ideas. And you take really uh, Freudian psychology and that understanding and really uh, philosophical romanticism that came out of the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. And that, you you fuse those together. And that's where we are now where it's uh, uh, how I feel on the inside is who I am. That, that, that's, that's a recent, in the, in the grand scheme of history, a recent thought. And it is not the core of who we are. I love what Christopher Yuan says. Christopher Yuan is a professor at Wheaton College. Um, he uh, was in, he was uh, pursuing homosexuality for years as an unbeliever. He became a Christian, and he now is a, is a very helpful voice in this arena. I love what he says in his book. He says, There is no other sin so closely linked to identity. For example, being a gossiper is not who he is, but what he is. Or being an adulteress is not who she is, but what she does. Being a hater is not who he is, but what he does. Should the capacity for same-sex attractions really describe who I am at my most basic level? Or should it describe how I am? Might this be a categorical fallacy that ultimately distorts how we think and live? The terms heterosexual and homosexual turn desire into personhood, experience into ontology. And it's like he hit the nail on the head. It takes a desire and it turns into personhood, the core of actually who we are. And I agree with him on this. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ that think it's wise to identify with these labels, I would say, don't. Don't, don't, don't use the lexicon of the day. Don't use the language of the day. This language came with a movement, and you inevitably are going to celebrate the, uh, uh, the achievement of identity through sexual desire. And I'll just finish with what Rosaria Butterfield says on this. She says, making an identity out of temptation is like putting on the opposing team's jersey at a ball game and then taking to the field. It is confusing, deceptive, and dangerous. How do we make an identity out of temptation? By collapsing what you desire with who you are, by collapsing what tempts you or what trips you up with who you will become. And I think she's right. I don't think we should use the lexicon of the day. I don't think we should use the labels of the day. We should think of this wiser, more theologically and biblically. That is why last week I went so hard after 1 Corinthians 6. That's That's how Paul thinks. He thinks we have sin, but once you're Christian, you are those things. Such were some of you, not such are some of you. But in Christ, you have a new identity. We should embrace that new identity and not attach anything to it. All right, I belabored that point. Four. Fourth question. Do we really recommend celibacy for anyone who's same-sex attracted? Exclusively same-sex attracted. Yes. Yes, we do. It means that if you are single and you are unable to ever get married, then yes, we recommend uh, celibacy. I really appreciate what Christopher Yuan says on this. He says, holy sexuality... And that's his book. He has a concept of holy sexuality, and this is really comes from his book, and he summarizes it well. Holy sexuality consists of two paths, chastity and singleness and faithfulness and marriage. 
Chastity is more than simple abstention from extramarital sex. It conveys purity and holiness. Faithfulness is more than maintaining chastity and avoiding illicit sex. It conveys covenantal commitment. He goes on to say, holy sexuality is chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And then he finishes. He says, godly marriage and godly singleness are two sides of the same coin. We should stop emphasizing only one without the other. Both are good. Holy sexuality, chastity and singleness, and faithfulness in marriage is God's good standard for everyone. And like, that's it. That's the calling. If you are married, you choose faithfulness. You choose to pursue your spouse. You don't choose pornography. You don't choose uh, uh, sexual sin. You don't choose adultery. You choose Christ. And if you are celibate, you choose Christ in union with him and nothing else. And when you make that argument, some will come along and say, that's just not fair Some say it's not fair to tell someone that for 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years, they can't be with who they want to be with. They can't marry who they want to marry. Why would you put that on somebody? And I would answer that by saying that logic only makes sense in a culture that so idolizes sex and romance and marriage. I mean, our culture acts like if you're, single, that you're an incomplete person. It buys into the platonic idea that we're all looking for soulmates, the other half of your being to connect with so that you can be complete. That's platonic garbage. That's not true. You can be a single person and be absolutely fulfilled. You do not need somebody else to be fulfilled at all. And we live in a culture that so idolizes and worships marriage And I would even argue we have an evangelical subculture that does that mess as well. It's not true. I love what Sam Alberry says. Sam Alberry is also another Christian who uh, struggles with same-sex attraction exclusively and uh, uh, is is such a helpful voice in this arena. I love Sam Alberry. He says, I've always been single. On the whole, it has been deeply joyous, but I'm not immune from temptation. And when any leader suggests to me that chaste obedience to Christ and singleness is not sustainable, he is saying the very same thing to me that the devil says. And boy, oh boy, I mean, the American Western church that is so like held up marriage as like next level humanity and Christianity, saying, you, you need this, you need this, you need this. And it's just like, man, you're saying the same thing the devil says. Absolutely not. The Bible has a different approach on this. I mean, Paul has a different approach on this. Paul has some pretty blunt things to say about it in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, uh, talking about he's, the whole chapter is remaining as you're called, and he's, he's, he gets to singleness, and he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. (laughs) I've seen people try to like, oh, well, no, no, he just said it. When you're single, 
what Jesus teaches, that you are a eunuch for the kingdom. You have more time to be wholly devoted to Christ. And if you are married, you don't. You have world, he says marriage is worldly troubles. That's a fact. And they're sometimes wonderful worldly troubles, but they are. And children can be worldly troubles, and they're a wonderful gift from God. But don't for a moment say that you have all the time in the world to go and be missional. You don't. It's just a reality, and Paul just calls it like he calls balls and strikes like he sees it. All right. I told you this was not going to be a normal sermon. All right. I think I've made that point clear. Five, how can church family love and support someone in our church who struggles with same-sex attraction? Paul's pretty blunt about the advantages, but that doesn't mean that singleness is easy. How can we love our brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with same-sex attraction? 1 John 4, and the whole book of 1 John, we spent time in this a couple years ago, but it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Love your brother, 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 over and over and over and over again. That's the calling. Now, in the last nearly 15 years of following Christ and walking in the light in this struggle with other Christians. So last week was the first week that it was public. But for years, I've walked with other Christians privately. And I've experienced the love of Christ through his people. The church is a wonderful place to figure this out. And I've experienced it here in our church for years. And over the last week, all the text and things that were said, I have one person say a negative thing after last week's sermon, which that's our church. Our church is awesome. Love you guys. So I just want to build upon that and give you some real practical handles on how to actually love one another well and keep growing in love. All right. I got four things. The first, if someone discloses to you that they're struggling with same-sex attraction. If someone discloses you they're struggling with same-sex attraction, be patient and remind them of who they are in Christ. You can go to the next slide, Sean. It, be, be patient with them and then tell them who they are in Christ. Remind them of who they are. Okay? Now, let me give a caveat to this. Be careful. Don't try to compare your sin with theirs. Okay? That's true for a lot of sin struggles, but don't, don't try to... Sometimes we do that. We fill the void. And it's like, yeah, I'm a sinner too, and I struggle with this. And it's the same. And it's like, no, nah, it's not. But thank you. It's... <laughs> we just try to relate. It's like, no, just be, be careful there. Because what you can do is minimize someone's pain. So just be patient. And, and, and listen and remind them of their in Christ. And listen, if you're a Christian who also struggles with same-sex attraction and you're telling other people about it, give grace. Because people don't always say the most helpful things. Okay? Like, I, in all my years of following Christ and all my years of walking in light in this area, I've experienced Christians and the, the, I see the love behind their heart. But I've done this a lot, and I've seen some people say some things. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad you're not gay. Thank you. 
<laughs> I just, I mean, okay? Like I just, every now and then people just, they, they, they're figuring out. I've, for years, I've had to just help people think through how to respond in situations like this. And it's like, just be, be gracious. Because ultimately, it, it, what you got to understand is that like 99% of the time, and it's coming from a place of love. So be, be patient as well and gracious. All right, second. If you have a brother or sister in Christ that you're walking with who is struggling with same-sex attraction, don't be afraid to ask them about it. Don't be afraid to ask them about it. We should hold each other accountable with any sin. But don't be afraid to ask them. Do it. One of the things I've learned, and it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, I used to, uh, when I would uh, share this with other Christians, I would think, I would, have, I would just have this fear that that's the only thing they think about when they see me. That's the only thing they think of when they see me. And what I've learned over the years is that that's not true. First off, not everyone thinks about you all the time. That's kind of narcissistic. Secondly, <laughs> secondly, they just don't. They, they see who you are in Christ. And I mean, almost to the point of times where like, I, like Chet is a dear brother who I walk closely with. And every now and then Chet's like, oh man, I, I forget that you struggle with this. And I'm like, yeah, but I need you to not. I need, <laughs> I need you. I need you to ask about it every now and then. Like, I'm in the trenches, and I'm fighting, and, I'm, and I believe that Jesus is good and he's better. But don't be afraid to ask. Now, what I just said did not free all of you up to ask me about this all the time. If you do that, I will be annoyed. <laughs> I, I walk closely with, with people in my group and different people. Like in, so I, I, but I'm, I say all that to say, for the, for the brothers and sisters in Christ that you're walking closely with, don't be afraid to ask. And that's true for any sin, you guys. You should ask about, you should text and say, how are you doing in this area? You should be praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what they are facing. Okay. Three, act like church family. Act like church family. Paul's right about the advantage of singleness. It is an advantage for the kingdom, but don't for a moment think that it is easy and that loneliness is not a reality we need to continue to grow in being a church family that really does life together and this is actually if you're single okay, it doesn't even matter if you struggle with same sex attraction but we should be a family that invites those who are single into the life that we're living I love one of my, one of my good friends um, he uh, he's single and he really loves being single. He could be single for the rest of his life and he would be, he loves it. Um, and he, he said, um, he said, you know, honestly, it, I, every Tuesday uh, I have dinner at a friend of mine's house. We call it Tommy Tuesdays. And I have dinner with his wife and his kids every Tuesday. He said, Tommy Tuesdays are my favorite. And he goes and he has, friend, he has uh, dinner with his friends and he gets to see the good, the bad, and the ugly of wild family dynamics and children and all of it. But he's a part of their family because he's a part of that church and they're part of the same church family. And they live life together. And that's wonderful and beautiful and we need to grow in that. Because every now and then some of our single church members feel a little bit forgotten. 
And we, that shouldn't be the case. And I, I, I'm, I fail in this area. I have single friends in this church that every now and then I'm like, gosh, I just, my life is so busy and I'm just blah, 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 blah. I mean, all kinds of excuses. And it's like, no, we're family. We're church family. Believe that. And remember that sometimes walking in this can be lonely. But invite them into your life. Fourth, fourth way you can love your brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle with same-sex attraction is don't try to convert someone to heterosexuality. Don't try to convert someone to heterosexuality. We, the goal is not converting someone to heterosexuality. The goal is converting someone to Christ. The goal is to know who you are in Christ. The, the term conversion therapy has lost all meaning. I mean, it's just... Uh, for, okay. the, the, the goal... It's not heterosexuality. Okay, I'm going to go there. Conversion therapy has lost all of its meaning, okay? The, the city of Columbia passed a law a few years ago, and if you read the whole law, it says that anyone who's a licensed professional counselor, if they say anything that doesn't affirm someone's sexual identity, if it says anything that is contrary to how they're feeling, they can be fined for that. And it's like, that, that's not what conversion therapy is. That is garbage. What conversion therapy was... It was prevalent more in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s was taking people who were, ex- who were same-sex attracted, bringing them to a clinic, and exposing them to explicit images of someone of the opposite sex to try to convert them over to heterosexuality, which is insane. That's, that's crazy to think that you could win someone from one sin to another. It's just, don't. Don't try to set someone who's same-sex attracted up with someone else from, the same, from a different sex. Don't, don't try to convert someone to heterosexuality. Convert them to Christ. And if Jesus changes desires by his sovereign will, then praise the Lord. And that happens. I said that a decade ago. Culture would lose its mind. Say, no, sexuality is not fluid. Now, like, it's, everything's fluid. And, our, and so our culture is more okay with this. But no, there are Christians, Rosario Butterfield. Uh, they're, they're, I mean, there are Christians who have had their desires changed. But it's not because they, they went after heterosexuality. It's because they went after Christ. All right, I beat that horse dead. Okay, let me get to this last question. What do I do if I struggle with same-sex attraction? Final question today. What do I do if I struggle with same-sex attraction? You submit your disordered desires to Christ over and over and over and over and over again. Galatians 5.24 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you belong to Christ, we submit them to Christ over and over and over again. We remember that Jesus is better. We remember that we're not defined by our desires, but we're defined by our Savior, and we celebrate that reality. And we submit our disordered desires over and over again to Christ, and we remember that our our disordered desires are unnatural, but that Christ's grace is supernatural, and we live in that reality. And let me tell you something. It's okay to be sad about that sometimes. It's okay to grieve your inclinations. It is. Christians live between grief and joy. That's the Christian life. Grief and joy for, an, for everything. 
But it's okay at times to grieve sin and to grieve inclinations and to desire to try. When you blow the candle out and you have months where you're not tempted, and all of a sudden it just comes raging back. It's okay to grieve sin, but we don't stay in a state of grief because we have joy in Christ. Now, because the blood of Jesus covers us and his righteousness stands for us, but joy because we look that one day in eternity, I won't have this body. I won't have these temptations. I won't have any of this anymore. I'll just have Christ in a newly resurrected body for endless eternity. And what happens is, is that we just, this life feels long, but it's not. It's not. This life is momentary. It's fleeting. It's it's a vapor and then it's gone. But that is better. And eternity with Christ is better. So you fight tooth and nail with everything in you by the power of the Holy Spirit to put Sin to death. Grieve for the moment, but joy is coming in the morning. That morning doesn't end. All right, I've said enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that saves and redeems. God, I pray that you would help us have right thinking on this. I pray that you would help us enjoy you over any of our sin. And I pray that you help us be a church that combats this well. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Band's going to come up. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body that was broken for you. And he took the cup, which is the cup of the new covenant. And he said, this is my blood that was shed for you. That as often as you eat and drink this, you proclaim my death until I return. And Jesus then went to the cross where his body was broken and his blood was shed for all of our sins. That if you trust in Jesus, he covered you. He covered you. And you may have, you may have had a horrible week with real sin. And you get to joyfully come to the table and remember the good news of the gospel that covers you. There's gluten-free in that back corner right there. But you get to come to the table and remember that his blood was shed for you and his body was broken for you. How joyous is the good news of the gospel that Jesus saves and redeems. So joyfully come to the table remembering your Savior, but also remembering that this is a foreshadow of the meal that is to come, the eternal meal with Christ, when one day we won't have the sin that plagues us anymore. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, please don't come to the table. Come to Christ. Come realize and experience the joy that we have in following him. He is wonderful and he is good and he's ready for you.